Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. You've seen the video of the brave police officers rushing into a school to save children. Tonight, we'll talk to an ER doctor who was standing by ready to treat the victims, but none of the ambulances he expected ever arrived. Some of our politicians today saying there's nothing we can do about gun violence. Doctors disagree. Plus, the overdose drug Narcan will soon be on the shelves of grocery stores, gas stations, even vending machines. Do they have it at your child's school? Should parents keep it at home? We'll explain what you need to know. And tonight we bring you our next Pulse of the People, this one on how technology, like artificial intelligence, is changing all of our lives. I sit down with a group of Gen Xers, Millennials, and Gen Zs to find out what level of glee or panic this causes them. Technology is moving too fast for me personally, I can say. Um, I don't have Alexa. She's not allowed in my home. Uh, I don't talk to her. I don't have Siri activated. I'm a little maybe paranoid. That being said, me being scared of it isn't going to stop anything from happening. Okay, now I want to begin, though, with the Nashville school shooting. Let me introduce my panel. We have with us tonight former White House Communications Director Alyssa Farrah Griffin, data reporter Harry Anton, the Los Angeles Times' LZ Granderson, an award-winning journalist and founder of Mo News, Moshe Wanunu. Also joining us, we have Dr. Jay Wellens, Chief of Pediatric Neurological Surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. Dr. Wellens, I want to start with you. Um, can you just tell us what you did in the ER on Monday morning when you heard that there was a school shooting, um, how you prepared for the victims who might be coming to your ER? Well, Allison, uh, there was a whole host of people down in the emergency room. Uh, the, the text went out. You know, I looked down. I had about six or seven different texts come in saying that there was a mass casualty event. I got a phone call from the chief of staff saying, Jay, this didn't drill. You, you need to get downstairs. And uh, basically, you know, we, like many hospitals, you know, we do simulations for this kind of work. Uh, you know, trauma is a big deal uh, in our world of uh, pediatric health care. And it was, you know, 35, 40 people all in kind of an orderly, in, uh, in orderly uh, positions, you know, waiting for the ambulances to arrive. Um, and, and you know, everybody kind of has their position. There's anesthesia is there. The, the head of the trauma service is there running the situation. The head of the PEDS ER is there. The ear, nose, and throat doctors, there's the neurosurgery, we're there. There's just a, a whole bunch of people there ready to kind of lean in and do what it is that, you know, that we want to do, you know, which is to help these kids and save these kids' lives. And then you waited, and you waited, and then what happened? We waited. Yeah, so we waited, and we waited, just like you said. And then, uh, you know, then the word went out that there weren't any ambulances that were going to arrive. And it was uh, because everybody had died at the scene. And, yeah. um, 
you know, I will tell you, you know, Allison and the rest of the crew up there is that, uh, you know, that kind of, that silence and uh, that sadness is just, uh, it's just, it's just pervasive, you know, everybody just kind of slowly dispersed. And, and again, you know, when you watch, you know, the videos of, of those uh, police officers in Nashville, you know, leaning in to do their job. I mean, I, I watched that and it makes me so proud to, you know, to see them do what it is they were trained to do. And for us not to have that ability, it was just absolutely disheartening. Yeah, I can imagine. And I can imagine what you're describing, that silence as everybody disperses with the um, reality of, of what's just happened. It's so interesting, Doctor, because nine months ago, you wrote a piece for Time titled, If Our Politicians Could See What We Could See. Finish that sentence for us. If our politicians could see what you as an ER doctor could see, what would they do or what would they see? Well, uh, you know, they would they would sit down at a table and they would sit on all sides of the political fence and, and, and say, we all agree on one thing, and that is that our children should not be shot and killed at school. If they can agree with that one statement, and I can't imagine there's not a single person in the government or outside of the government within this country who would disagree with that. And then and then just hash it out. This is a republic. I believe in the republic. You know, the, the people that were a part of that that article, that essay, Allison, you know, it's a, it was the American Society of Pediatric Neurosurgery. We, you know, Uvalde had just happened. You know, we were just all felt so helpless in our world of pediatric neurosurgery about what to do. And, uh, you know, it was like, what do we do? Well, somebody, does anybody know a senator? Has anybody, can anybody write something? Can, can, does somebody know, um, you know, somebody in the media to contact? And, and that's really how that, that, that paper came out. Um, and it, it really was born out of this sense of frustration. And, you know, one of my closest friends is the chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Connecticut Children's Hospital. And he was there in Newtown when the kids, nobody came. And he described standing in the gowns, ready for people to come. And that was years ago. And I never ever, when I wrote those words down after I, after I talked to him and put it down in the essay, I never in a million years thought that I'd be getting that page, you know, saying that this is not a drill, you know, go down, this is a mass casualty event, it's a school shooting. And then I never even dreamed that we wouldn't even have a chance to act. It was just a, a remarkable situation. Well, Dr. Jay Wellens, thank you for all you do, and uh, thank you for describing it in those terms for us and for our viewers. It's really powerful. Thanks for your time tonight. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for elevating this because it's it's just so excruciatingly important. So, thank you all for talking about it. Agreed. I want to bring in my panel now, um, Mo. Let me start with you. That's haunting. It's haunting to think about them all standing there waiting to do their jobs. They don't want this assignment, but they were ready to do the assignment, and then nobody ever comes. And what's also haunting, three of the kids who died born after Sandy Hook, right? Like, never again, yet it happened. You know, it occurred to me as I was watching that uh, conversation that literally on 9-11, 3,000 Americans died. Afterwards, we invaded two countries, spent $2 trillion uh, over 20 years because 3,000 Americans died. 45,000 Americans die every year of gun violence. Now, that includes, um, you know, uh, that includes shootings, that includes accidents, that includes suicides, but let's add it up, right? And to think that 
we can't come up with a solution for this? This is not an external enemy. Or we can. This is an internal enemy. There there is a solution. What is it? It's coming in November 2024. Vote their ass out. The people who are saying that they can't do anything, fine. Thank you for your service. Get someone in who can. Americans have a choice. We really do. You don't have to go with Republicans who are going to support the NRA. You can go in the Republican primary and pick someone who's going to be for universal uh, background check, who's going to want to do something so that our kids don't get shot. You don't have to pick between Republican and Democrat. I'm not saying that you need to switch over and be a liberal for five seconds to stop school shootings. No, there is a primary. Do your damn jobs, study the candidates, and find someone that you can support who wants to do something to stop this. Well, the issue, one of the issues, LZ, and you know this so well, Alyssa, is that they have different takes on what would stop it. And we saw that highlighted so, in such technicolor today, in the halls of Congress, there were two congressmen, a Democrat, uh, Congressman Bowman of New York, and a Republican, um, Congressman Massey of Kentucky, and they... Here they are having it out. They have control of the House. The American people need to know that they don't have the courage to do anything to save the lives of children. More guns lead to more death. Look at the data. You're not looking at any data. You're you're carrying the water for the gun lobby. Are you listening to what I'm saying? Well, calm down. That's what I'm talking about. Children are dying. I know. I've got Nine-year-old children. I've got children. There's a solution. It's not armor teachers. That's what we're doing. There's never Clown. been a shooting. Clown. Never Clown. been a, a shooting. It's time. Look, we've got guns here to protect us. And he doesn't believe the kids should have somebody to protect them. Well, so you've worked in D.C. Obviously, this is madness. Is madness. Um, I think that there's actually quite a big disconnect from the American public sentiments and elected officials in Washington, uh, specifically on the Republican side. I'm a Republican. I fundamentally believe in the Second Amendment and responsible legal gun ownership. However, 92% of Americans support background checks. For example, red flag laws poll in the 90%. This notion I reject wholeheartedly that there isn't more that elected officials can do to keep children from being massacred. And I was, I mean, I'm heartened by the fact that Tom Tillis, Chris Murphy were able to come together and do you know, take some steps on gun reform earlier this year, but it clearly isn't going far enough. And I think what happens, unfortunately, is too often the right retreats into the partisan corner of we've got to just address mental health and harden our schools. And then the left says it's only about the guns. Give Joe Biden credit. He has addressed the mental health aspect. It's both. It requires a gun to commit the crime, but it requires somebody who is in a mental state that they're willing to mow down children. You have to be able to address both. You should get the hell out of Congress if you're not willing to act on it. And people saying we're not doing anything, well, then, then let someone else do it. Well, but you both have said that. And here's, um, here is someone, here is a congressman who says there is just no way we're ever going to fix this. So mm. this is Congressman mm-hmm. Tim Burchett on uh, gun legislation. He is um, from Nashville, I believe. So listen to him today. Three precious little kids lost their lives, and I believe three adults, I believe, is, and um, and the shooter, of course, lost their life too. So it's, it's a horrible, horrible situation, and we're not going to fix it. Criminals are going to be criminals, and my daddy fought in the Second World War, fought in the Pacific, fought the Japanese, and he told me, he said, buddy, he said, if somebody wants to take you out and doesn't mind losing their life, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do about it. Washington's going to fix this problem. You're wrong. They're not going to fix this problem. They are the problem. 
So, Harry, is his option to surrender? I, I guess it is. And, you know, my father was drafted in the, the Army in 1945. I don't think he would have quite shared the same sentiment as uh, that gentleman's father who served in World War II. But I think he might be taking the wrong message from th- his father. His think- father, <laughs> who served in the Pacific, he thinks we should have surrendered to the I, Japanese? I, I, I doubt his father said that. I, 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 I doubt his father said that, you know. But at the end of the day, I think that if nothing else, we... I, I do think there's some agreement here that this ultimately is in the hands of the voters. The voters are the ones who put these people in the Congress. The voters are the ones who vote on background check measures, whether they be in Nevada or in Maine, swing states, where basically background checks really kind of came in at about the 50 percent mark. They're slightly passing or slightly failing. At the end of the day, if voters want to change something in this country, they're the ones who are going to do it because they're the ones who, A, control the ballot measures, and they're B, they're the ones who control the people who serve them in Congress and potentially change the laws. But I, I do. Encu- oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I encourage people to go back. We just went through this. Yeah. You know, I'm a Gen Xer. Tobacco put us through this already. We've done this. They knew, what, in the 1950s, there was some sort of loose link between cigarette and cancer. They went out and hired a PR firm. In the 1960s, when the Surgeon General came out and said, hey, there seems to be a connection between tobacco and, and cancer, they went out and hired lobbyists. They continued to push it back and push it back, knowing full well there was a connection because they didn't want to hurt their bottom line. We've already done this as a country. So why are we doing this again when it comes to guns when we did it with cigarettes? And, and, well, the, and the thing I'll just add here is the problem's getting worse, right? We've had 16 school shootings this year. That's more than any of the last five years, except for, in fact, 2022, and it was 20 at this point. And the number of mass shootings is also well up. We're, we're at double. 130 right now for the year. And so the, the idea, their plan of we can't do anything, it's not working. No, their plan no, of doing no. nothing. Well, it, and the problem, I would say, is I think there is an appetite in the Senate, as I noted, obviously, the gun reform that went through. And even Chris Murphy on CNN the other day said, if you're not going to be able to do you know, an assault, so-called assault weapons ban, he even said, then let's put in requirements for more training and more background checks have one. That could pass the Senate, but hyperpartisan gerrymandering on both sides in the House has districts so red or so blue that there is no room for compromise on an issue to get something that could actually pass through the I'm, I'm interested in this divide between gun owners and, and the Republican legislators who represent them. I was talking to gun owners today um, in, in our community on Instagram, and I was like, what do you guys think? And in, and in terms of background checks, training, uh, wait times, mental health checks. I mean, each scenario that we look at in recent uh, in the recent weeks are different, right? We had the six-year-old mm-hmm. who grabbed the gun. Clearly, it wasn't secure in that home. We had the uh, shooting at the high school in Denver. That was a handgun. So an assault weapons ban ain't going to stop that. But what are you going to do there? In this case, in Nashville, you had someone under the care of a doctor who purchased seven weapons. Um, well, clearly, they're creatively get together on Capitol Hill or get together in Tennessee and figure out a solution as to why somebody under care who's on suicide watch was able to buy seven weapons. Yeah. But, but, but where is that divide? How is it that this is what Republicans uh, on Capitol Hill purport to represent, and yet in talking to gun owners, self-described conservatives, they say, actually, I'd be fine with some of this stuff. There, is, the there is a disconnect because I'm, I'm a Republican and a gun owner, and I fundamentally believe that we need more strenuous background checks and that there are actions that we can take that can keep... It's such a uniquely American problem. This doesn't happen. Absolutely. Places. It goes back to yes. the primaries again. It really does. No one's... I'm not suggesting that Republicans will switch over and vote Democrat. What I'm suggesting is use your primary more intelligently. <laughs> Stop going for people who are going after drag queens or saying CRT is around the corner. Don't pay attention to all the other important issues. No, 
Use the primary to actually help solve this problem. Well, such a great point because Tennessee is definitely cracking down on drag queens. Yes, they are. So, <laughs> I mean, it is true. Including this is the real animation. That's right. The, that is the legislation. we got to go. Thank you very much, everyone. Really appreciate that. Stick around because when we come back, John Fetterman, Senator Fetterman, is returning to the Senate after being hospitalized at Walter Reed for depression since February. He was there longer than the average stay. Why? And what will it take for him to get back into his job on Capitol Hill. All of that. Democratic Senator John Fetterman is on his way back to the Senate. A source tells CNN that Fetterman will return to his office the week of April 17th. That's two months after he checked himself into Walter Reed to receive treatment for clinical depression. Sources say he's doing well with his treatment. So what will it mean to have the senator back at work? We're back with our panel now. So, um, Alyssa, he was in the hospital longer than average. So the average, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, Inquirer that's done um, an in-depth article on this, the average stay for depression um, is six to seven days. He was there 40 days. And what they say is that there were a couple of reasons. Number one, he'd had a stroke. So they were trying to make sure that his medicines weren't interfering with his treatment for the stroke. And so also after having a stroke, you're more prone to depression. There are changes, chemical changes in your brain, Mm -hmm. as well as the depression that comes from having lost some of your, you know, he had auditory processing issues. So some of your capabilities. Yeah. And I had a family member had a very similar experience. um, And it does generally get better with time. It's something that can kind of self-heal in the brain. Um, I think that it's going to be incumbent upon the senator when he's back and when he's healed to just to talk to his voters about where he's at, how he's been able to, how he's doing the job when he's in the hospital, what he's tasked staff to do. Listen, mental health is a real issue in this country. I actually think it's powerful and important that he's highlighting that this is something he was suffering from. But he does, there's a, there's a, a burden of just explaining how the job is still getting done while he's out of the office. One of the things that we've learned is his staff has been uh, making daily visits to him in the hospital to update him on goings on on the Hill. And he has co-sponsored legislation from his hospital <laughs> bed. So I guess it's it's working still. It, it, it's working. And, you know, I should point out that, you know, the voters of Pennsylvania, while they perhaps didn't know about the depression issue, they certainly knew about the stroke. And he won easily by five points, despite the fact that there were many Republicans who, who attacked him over it. Look, I think, you know, whenever I hear about health problems such as this, I, I always think that the uh, voters are more forgiving than some in the press are. Uh, the fact is the voters have friends and family who have suffered depression. They have had friends and family who have suffered strokes. So uh, my guess is, you know, based upon looking at the polling data, uh, that John Fetterman's political future, as long as he's able to go back and do his job, is going to be just fine. But obviously he may have some catching up to do in terms of his set of duties. Is it fair to ask if he'll be able to work at full capacity? Yes, it is fair to ask. But it's also fair to be, it's also fair to be able to handle the response. Right. And I don't just mean in terms of what the answer is, but how he answers it, because part of the discomfort people have is because he has had a stroke and his speech is a little bit different. And we in this nation, we just have a problem with looking at old people. There are a problem dealing with people who may have physical challenges and we get uncomfortable and we would much rather vote that person out and not deal with them than actually be uncomfortable, as we were talking about yesterday. So it's not just about the answer, but how he's answering it and how people receive and think he's going to be able to do the job based upon how he sounds and looks. And there were questions during the campaign as to the lack of transparency 
um, that you were getting from the Fetterman camp for a while. And so I think the, one of the lessons is be transparent, be a spokesperson on these issues. And by the way, he's not the first senator to have a stroke and serve. Mark Kirk from my home state of Illinois, you know, had a stroke and served for four years. Now, by the way, that did come up in his election in 2016 against Tammy Duckworth. She made it an issue at times. He was voted out for a variety of reasons, but, and then you, before that, you had Tim Johnson. I mean, I remember Senator Kennedy being wheeled out onto the, you know, this is not the first time, also given the age of the Senate, that some have medical issues. But do so, we think it's in his nature to be transparent? I think it's it's probably up to his staff at this point. That's the open question. That's what I'm curious to see. I um, I interviewed him on during the campaign, and it was shortly after he had a fairly rocky debate. And even a few, it was probably a week later, I interviewed him on another network. And you, would, you saw that there was significant improvement in that short amount of time. So I do think seeing now, you know, he's been down, he's been out of the public eye, for him to give some sort of address or remarks I think would be important so people could see, yes, he's progressing, yes, he's still tuned in and able to serve. Again, this is a six-year term, so yes. um, he's not up for election. This could yeah. be in the back, you know, the rearview mirror by the time he's running. Okay, great point. Thank you all. A big step forward in the fight against America's opioid epidemic, the FDA approving the first over-the-counter version of Narcan, which is used to reverse overdoses. Will it bring down the near record level of overdose deaths? The FDA taking a big step towards addressing America's opioid crisis. The FDA approving over-the-counter sales of Narcan, the opioid antidote. It's sold in the form of a nasal spray and blocks the effects of opioids on the brain and restores breathing. This decision by the FDA could save thousands of lives. Data from the CDC shows that in 2021 alone, more than 70,000 people died from fentanyl and other synthetic opioids. The rise in deaths comes at the same time that authorities have seen a surge in the amount of fentanyl seized at the border with Mexico. CNN's David Culver took a look at how the drug even gets to the border and found that it starts in China despite the country banning the production and sale of all forms of fentanyl following pressure from the U.S., the ingredients to make the drug are still coming. And where are they going? Well, here's some of David Culver's report. DEA officials tell us the majority of precursors ship directly to Mexico, where cartels cook up fentanyl in secret labs. We wanted to see for ourselves. Traveling into the state of Sinaloa, cartel country as some see it, we got exclusive access with the Mexican army as they hunt for drug labs. They took us to their latest fentanyl lab bust, this unassuming home. That white building right there, that's the fentanyl lab. The army says they seized 270,000 pills here, all containing fentanyl. Soldiers keep watch 24-7, preserving the scenes for prosecutors and preventing cartel members from restarting production here. My panel is back with me now. Uh, Mosh, so uh, having Narcan available, I mean, they're talking about having it at um, gas stations, having it in vending machines, I mean, making it readily available. And there's talk even of parents of teenagers having it, keeping it in the home in case there's a party, you know, just having it be I don't know what what this says, if this is going to help stop everyone from dying or we've just accepted the fact that fentanyl and opioids are everywhere. It's like a defibrillator, right? You need to have them everywhere. And the problem is that 
with all those drugs coming across the border, laced with fentanyl, that kids, when they have a party and there's drugs, there's a chance that there could be fentanyl in there. I mean, what's remarkable about the Mexican cartels is they're literally monitoring fentanyl deaths in America, being like, ooh, guys, you cooked it a little too uh, hot this time. I mean, that is happening. Um, And they're like, all right, you know, because they're literally working in a lab creating this stuff to try to make it as addictive as possible without killing people. And I doubt they're scientists, right? <laughs> like, like they are, we, we shouldn't you know have I mean? no for pharmaceutical <laughs> yeah. manufacturers I, 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 who I don't, drug cartels. I don't think no. they went to the schools and, you no. know, making sure everything's accurate. They're probably, like, cooking it up the way that I cook in the kitchen, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, blah, blah, blah. Listen, what is it saying? We have a problem. But we just got done ripping the government because it wasn't doing anything about guns. So I'm not going to rip the government for finally making the move to get this more accessible to people. Mm. I would rather us try to treat this like COVID and make it all hands on deck than say, oh, my gosh, we're so drug addict. Maybe we shouldn't do this. No, let's save people lives first and then deal with the moral aspect later. I find this comparison very interesting because, Alyssa, Republicans in particular are very engaged and very passionate about um, trying to stop fentanyl from killing teenagers. And they've held, I think, effective hearings and certainly gotten the country's attention about how many teenagers die from fentanyl overdoses. We've heard the heartbreaking stories. More kids and teenagers die from gun violence. And yet, Republicans say, well, there's nothing we can do about that. That's interesting. Well, and that, that's, I mean, to, to LZ's point, that you just, you cannot just throw your hands up and say you're not getting something done. This is actually, I think this is a huge move by the FDA. This could save countless thousands of lives. Police officers, first responders have had Narcan on them for years. If you take, if you take something laced with fentanyl, it can kill you within 10 minutes. So this has the possibility to reverse those effects. And oftentimes, it's, um, it's people who think they're taking something like a Xanax or a Percocet, maybe, you know, trying to help them sleep or they're trying to just have some fun and it's laced with it and it can end up killing people. This is a move in the right direction. I don't think we should become, we should stop trying to diagnose the true problem, which is the massive flood of drugs over our southern border. But this will save lives. In the but am I wrong to see it through this political lens? I don't think you're wrong. I mean, but if you look at the polling, there's a big difference between how people view guns and how people view the opioid crisis, right? Though one is more deadly. One may be more deadly, but more Republicans say that the number one public health crisis is opioids. It is drug overdoses. They don't say the same thing about guns. At the, you know, but we, more kids are killed. It's the number I, one killer of kids. Oh, I, 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 I understand what the stats say. I understand that. But that doesn't necessarily mean how the public feels. And at the end of the day, the politicians are going to follow where the voters go. And this, I think, is the giant disconnect that's going on. Democrats are there on both of those issues, but Republicans aren't. And I think the response that you're seeing on those two issues sort of illustrate that polling. Well, 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 are hitting well, their children more. Is, is the difference, right? Well, like, the, they're having more close encounters with the issue than perhaps some other... I think that's a great way to put it. And what I'll also note is, you know, I, I, a few weeks ago, I went into a spreadsheet and I was like, okay, is there any places, you know, are Republican places more likely to have drug overdoses than Democratic okay. places? No. no. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Right. It's everywhere. It's right. hitting everywhere. What were you going to say? Well, and I, and I do think if you strip away the, you know... I think most people, if they're taking their partisan hats off, see that these are both huge issues that need to be addressed. But at the end of the day, well, the crisis at the border is a legitimate crisis, humanitarian and national security that has to be dealt with. It is also a fundraising boon. It is something that turns voters out for my party. So keep that as an issue that it's always going to be front and center in Republican politics. On the flip side, I think that it's a much harder case to make with the base on the gun issue. And that's why I really applaud people like Senator Tom Tillis, who are coming out and getting in front of it and saying, you don't want this happening in your community. 
you want to be able to say you at least tried to do something and you can respect legal gun ownership while still doing something. We've got to change the narrative within the GOP. I think the country's there. I don't think elected officials are. Marsh, did you have a point? Yeah, I, well, I, I think that we're looking at comprehensive solutions, right? Deal with the border. In the meantime, make Narcan available on gun violence, like school security, mental health, gun laws. Let's look at it comprehensively. Um, to Harry's point about Democrats, I think Republicans would argue that Democrats aren't there on the border and on fentanyl. Um, so, so ultimately, like both parties need to say, yeah. if we're all going to take off our partisan hats, let's take off our partisan hats and look at everything comprehensively. You know, interestingly, the Mexican president this week said we're going to deal with the fentanyl issue to what extent he can. It's unclear. There was the trial recently of the head of the Mexican FBI that we put on trial here that was in the pocket of the cartels. So there are issues across the border. I mean, that's a much more complicated international issue, but certainly something we need to deal with. And there's a cultural aspect to it as well, right? Like, there's the border, there's the Narcan, and then there's the reason why people are taking drugs. Yeah. And I think the cultural aspect of this conversation doesn't get enough oxygen Sure, as the well. demand. I mean, you have to right, also exactly. put the demand. Yeah. Uh, thank you all very much for that. So some of the biggest names in tech are issuing a dire warning about artificial intelligence. And between tools like ChatGPT and social media algorithms, it's all happening very fast. We're going to get a pulse of the people across the generational spectrum. How do Gen Zs feel about it? How about Gen Xs? How about millennials? All of that's next. All right, my panel is standing by to talk about this next story. Some of the biggest names in the tech industry, including Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak, are calling for a six-month pause in the development of artificial intelligence systems, citing what they call, and I quote, profound risks to society and humanity. Dozens of industry leaders signing a letter saying that protocols must be implemented to halt an out-of-control AI development race. It all sounds worrisome. Our latest Pulse of the People panel focuses on the galloping advances in technology and the impact that it's having on all of us. Members of Gen X, Gen Z, and millennials are all expressing their concerns. How many of you feel that culture is shifting, given technology and everything else, too fast? Show of hands. Basically all of you. I would definitely say technology is taking over our lives And in some ways, it's not for the best. I think it's definitely changed the way that we interact with other people. People are more worried about 1.3 thousand friends on Instagram or Twitter rather than actually maintaining close personal relationships with the people that are important to them. I will agree, uh, you know, that we're not being careful with the technology that we are producing. I have not actually used ChatGDP. All all I've heard from friends is that, oh, my goodness, Technology is moving too fast for me personally, I can say. Um, I don't have Alexa. She's not allowed in my home. Uh, I don't talk to her. I don't have Siri activated. I'm a little maybe paranoid. That being said, me being scared of it isn't going to stop anything from happening. And it's really insidious what it does to our attention spans And the way it commodifies our attention and our selfhood to then just make us better consumers to go buy things on the Instagram ads. I mean, it's complicated stuff. My wife and I, we run two social media accounts uh, that focuses on travel because we want to encourage Latinos to travel the world. Uh, So I'm trying to help fans, you know, travel the 2026 World Cup. And I need TikTok to not be banned. (laughs) 
<laughs> for my for, for purely for the promotional purposes of, of my business. And so there are benefits to the technology that we have. I'm trying to help fellow folks save money because I think that's at least a helpful thing to do in this world rather than create more angry tweets at everybody else. As far as my take on my generation, on one hand, we accomplished so much. We created industries out of whole cloth. And I, I'm a technology aficionado, but I'm also horrified by what it's done to us. And I see the alienation. I have a daughter who's 18, and, and the way she and her friends communicate and what they see and what they're influenced by is horrific. When I hear Steve Jobs, who said that he didn't allow the devices he created in his own house for his children, I thought, well, that's really telling. And, and I, <laughs> I wish somebody had given us that warning label. Once again, this week, chat GPT-3 and now 4, and they're absolutely amazing. But there's also the, the very inventors of the technology are saying, we can't be responsible for what's going to be done with it. It would be helpful if the people in power that are, you know, they're not reflective of the generations that are using this technology, uh, we would have a different leadership, right? So it would be helpful if more of us were in charge to help implement new policies that can help continue this advancement in technology while at the same time uh, not create those unintended consequences. How many people like Danny's idea or agree with Danny's idea that if our legislative leaders were of a younger generation, we'd be in better hands with social media and technology? I think it's a great idea. And if uh, when I first saw, it was the first hearings on, on Capitol Hill when Zuckerberg was being interviewed and watching the senators at that time who had no understanding of, of Facebook at all, and they didn't even know the questions to answer, ask. They didn't understand the answers that they were being given, and it was an absolute embarrassment. Those in power right now have, don't have a clue what's coming. One of the answers is you elect more people like Maxwell Frost, who's a representative from Florida, who I believe is the youngest congressman now at 26, 27. Um, I think we need people, more people in their 20s in Congress, for sure. I wake up every day in some measure of panic around the future and my future in particular. Um, I am trying to temper that with gratitude for all the things that are going right in the world, like this very civil discourse that we can have tonight, for example. People my age and older have to in empower those of the younger generations who, who have invented it, who understand it to take control of it, or it will take control of us. And that, that's, that scenario is just too horrific. So I'm, I'm choosing to be optimistic if we, if we can have this level of discourse going forward. We definitely have to be able to maintain that civil discourse so that we can have policy discussions, we can have debate, and we can make progress for the future in the right direction. And it's all just about talking and being able to reach that common ground and those compromises. Okay, so we all agree AI has gone wild. Basically, that's what I just got out of that. <laughs> so what might happen next? The panel is going to weigh in. I hope you just saw Pulse of the People. That's our segment where I spoke to Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Zers about the frenzy of developments in technology 
and how we feel about it, including artificial intelligence, chat GPT, and the effect they're all having on all of us. Let's bring back my panel. I'm back with Alyssa Harry, LZ, and Mosh. LZ, I feel like when we talk about these futuristic things, we, we alternately <laughs> giggle because we think like it's sci-fi stuff and right? it's never going to happen and feel petrified and are clenching at all times. <laughs> and I don't know what the middle ground answer is here. All I know is what the millennial was talking about, about like the Marjorie Taylor Greens and uh, you know Chuck Schumer's all getting together and trying to decide what's best for us with technology. That scares the hell out of me. <laughs> I'm just being real with you. Like you might be experts whenever Phil you came into Congress to bring, but you're not expert in technology. And if the people who are in charge of technology are saying pump the brakes, then I think Congress should be putting on the emergency brake because they are not prepared to handle that conversation. It's a great point. They are saying pump the brakes. The people who know what they're doing with right. This. The last real regulation we had on Capitol Hill in regards to tech happened in the 90s in the dial-up era, right? Like, they still haven't figured out how to regulate for social media and its impact of the past decade. And now we're at Web 3.0 and at AI, and, like, where is that going? And ultimately what's interesting is, so the Internet partially developed right out of universities and the Pentagon, ARPANET, right? That's the history of the Internet. Yep, and Al Gore. And, and Al Gore, you know, God bless him. At the same time, you now have AI being developed by a bunch of tech CEOs with for-profit goals. Mm -hmm. Um, Where does that go? Skynet. Do we trust that process? (laughs) And at the same time, interestingly, the headlines in the past few weeks, among the job cuts in tech, the ethical AI offices Uh within Microsoft, within Meta, within uh, multiple companies that are developing AI, among the job cuts, the people who are the ethicists. <laughs> oh, no. Well, and when I was at the Department of Defense, we released the principles of ethical artificial intelligence use. And when we were looking at it in the defense realm, we were talking about the weapon systems. We were talking about using AI in warfare. And if we're doing it, we know our adversaries are also experimenting with it. So not to offer an even scarier notion here, but if there's fears about, you know, chat GPT getting too smart... Think of what that happens when you're incorporating it into things like weapon systems, which is happening in real time with places like China. All right. I, I, I would just say, you know, I agree with all the scary. You know, I'm the type of guy, I mean, take a look at the phone that I still have right here, right? <laughs> with the keyboard. Uh, with the so keyboard. Good. I love the keyboard. I, I hold on. Is that to, a typewriter? <laughs> Matt, I actually used to collect them from thrift shops. I'm not kidding you. But either way. Uh, So I get all of that. And, you know, I am worried, but I also am kind of excited, right? I kind of wonder where we're going to end up. Like the idea that I'm able to go on a chat GPT and I'm able to, you know, ask it these questions and it comes up and obviously it's flawed in some ways and will say things sometimes that are untrue. But I mean, what's your best case scenario? What do you want to use it for that you can't use the internet and you're typewriter there for? (laughs) Well, I I would say, you know, one thing I might want to use it for is essentially, you know, rough drafts for certain things, right? I then go in and then I'm able to, you know, figure out, okay, this is not actually right, but it will sort of cut the, uh, cut how long it takes to do certain tasks. That's what I'm saying. There's, I'm, I'm hopeful there's always going to be some human component to whatever it is that we're talking about. If we're not, then Hello, uh, that could be I very mean, scary. Of, yeah, part of the problem is that it doesn't know the truth. No, it doesn't. It doesn't know the no, truth. No, that's so exactly it, right. it spits out a lot of sometimes just falsehoods and nonsense and gibberish, and it also falls in love with you accidentally. Uh, that, that's what I'm still not over. Yes. the one that fell in love with the, the reporter, tried reporter. to break up his marriage, yes. and also talked about wanting to, you know, get out of the machine. Do some cyber attacks and get out of the machine. <laughs> Going the, way too the far. Say that AI has the ability to hallucinate. Come on. For whatever that's worth. I, At know. the same time, I, by the way, speaking of our profession, journalism, I threw in there last week, I was testing out Bard versus ChatGPT, and I was like, write me a four-paragraph latest story on the Gwyneth Paltrow trial. It was actually very well done. <laughs> like, and it came out in about five seconds. 
So just FYI. Your jobs are not secure. Explain to me. Okay, so you can write a paper, but if you were to call a business and try to get to like cancel like a service and use the automated service, it cannot. Why can't that work? That cannot work. So explain to me. The cable company will not be getting AI. (laughs) The one place that we could use it all happily is not going to be getting it. But just just real quick to put a finer point on it. I mean, when the billionaires behind the invention of this are warning us, I do think we should heed it. These are the people who are going to jettison off the planet the second they can. The rest of us can't. Right, right. Elon has a space program and he's warning about it. Great point. Thank you all very much. Okay, so the battle between Disney and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is getting more heated. The new board, handpicked by DeSantis, says Disney is quietly stripping it of its power. We're going to explain next. We have big developments tonight in the Trump investigations that we'll get to in a second. Also tonight, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a potential 2024 challenger, may have been outsmarted in his ongoing battle with Disney. The company reached an agreement with the outgoing board of its special taxing district in Central Florida. I'm going to explain. I'm going to say words right now, and then Ellie Honig is going to explain the words that I'm saying. But I'll, I'll That's continue. our relationship. <laughs> okay, so locked in key provisions. They locked in key provisions before DeSantis's new board was able to take over. And their battle stems from Disney's opposition, you'll remember, to Florida, that Florida law that prohibits instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity through third grade and only in an age-appropriate manner in older grades. That was the law that critics dubbed Don't Say Gay. DeSantis retaliated, you'll remember, by going after Disney's special tax status around its sprawling Orlando area theme parks. Okay, so we have a lot to discuss with my panel. Jay Michelson is here. He's a Rolling Stone writer slash rabbi. We have Ellie Hone. He's our CNN senior legal eagle who's going to explain everything tonight. Mondaire Jones is a former Democratic congressman and Evan Siegfried is a political consultant and millennial expert. (laughs) Okay, gentlemen, great to have you here. What just happened? Okay, (laughs) it turns out that for a long time now, Disney has been given quasi-governmental powers over itself. Basically, the state of Florida has allowed them to run their own shop, to make their own rules, and get special little tax breaks. Okay, along comes this law that's sometimes called the Don't Say Gay Law. Disney opposes this. Ron DeSantis, in his sort of typical Ron DeSantis fashion, sees a moment of political opportunity. He says, oh, good, I can go after Disney because they don't like this law. And so he says, I'm going to take away your special privileges, Disney. I'm going to take back control of you like any other company for the state. And so the way that they execute that is DeSantis is given the power to name this board. There's a special board that governs Disney and to put all his own people on the board. But before DeSantis's people could take power, the old board entered into an agreement with Disney, which basically said, you can continue running yourself forever before we leave office. So it's like a lame duck Congress sort of passing a bill in its final days saying, we're going to preserve the status quo forever. And now we're going to have a legal battle about whether that agreement is good. Clever maneuver. It's basically Mr. Toad's wild ride, but with people in suits. <laughs> That's right. supposed to get that reference? <laughs> Ask the millennial, millennial guy. Oh, okay. huh? Have you been to Disney World? I have. Well, then you're conflicted out of this segment. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was the next segment we're going to do. <laughs> so great. So, this is yes. great, though, right? This is like live by mob rule, die by mob rule. I mean, he's playing. It's kind of like worthy of a Scorsese film. Like, <laughs> I'm going to take I'll appoint the board myself. Well, I'm going to appoint the board before the board is appointed. I'm going <laughs> to grandfather myself in. So it's great. You know, I live near where The Sopranos uh, last episode was filmed in uh, New Jersey. So this all resonates for me. Great. A nonviolent Scorsese film. Just uh, <laughs> no. at a corporate board level. Mixing my mafia <laughs> 
Let's yeah. talk about the political violence or the political fallout for this. Yes. Ron DeSantis has been getting beaten up by Donald Trump with a two by four. And what just really, called names, right? Yes. And said that he didn't names do as and, well in Florida. And that he would think. be running a pizza or he would be working at, not even running a pizza parlor if it weren't for him and uh, all of this. These are serious but, aspersions in a Republican primary. Yes. But uh, Donald, uh, DeSantis came really to the fore to the Republicans in his fights on these culture wars and the fight with Disney. So I think in the short term, him taking on Disney and taking them to court is going to benefit him. But in the, there is a long-term risk. If he loses in court, Donald Trump is going to be able to run away with that because DeSantis's argument going into before he even announces his presidential campaign is, I get results. Well, if he can't get results and he gets snookered by Mickey Mouse, <laughs> can you imagine the names and all of the things that Donald Trump will say? I think Ron DeSantis will stay governor through 2026 if that happens. This is certainly a brilliant plot twist in, in what is an elaborate effort to, to, to quash any so-called woke uh, people and entities in the state of Florida on the part of Ron DeSantis. But as he litigates this in court, I do wonder whether this doesn't remind the American people of how unimportant or ridiculous some of the projects that Ron DeSantis has undertaken are, right? I don't think American, the American people, as they deal with inflation and as they, you know, take another look at the war in Ukraine that we're heavily invested in, uh, that they want to see this guy go up against Mickey Mouse any longer than what he's already done. I, I mean, I guess we'll see because people definitely seem exercised by woke stuff. So we'll see if it still has. But you know, the, the numbers yeah. are not really actually there. I mean, certainly for the Republican primary, being on, on the on the anti-woke team is a winner. But when you actually look at the numbers on Don't Say Gay in particular and Florida participating in the sort of nationwide war on trans people, the numbers, the, the moderate middle of America is not on board both with either with fighting, you know, Disney and Mickey Mouse or with criminalizing being gay and trans. OK, let's move on to what we've learned in the Trump investigations today, or at least one of them. So the Manhattan D.A., this is the one that is the Stormy Daniels hush money payment. And we found out today that they haven't made any decision about indictment and they're going to be taking most of April off. And so basically, Ellie, um, does this mean that this investigation is petering out, this one? No, it does not necessarily mean that. Let's, let's keep this in mind, first of all. Prosecutors have almost complete control over what they do in a grand jury when they go into a grand jury. Alvin Bragg right now has unfettered say over will he seek an indictment and when. There's no reason other than we're all going crazy with impatience, myself included, but there's no reason why he has to make a decision by today, tomorrow, next week. He may have a statute of limitations issue that crops up in a, in a month or so, but there's no legal difference. And so it could be, I'll give you some of the why. Everyone's saying, why, 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 why is this taking so long? Could be he just wants to think about it. Could be he's just not sure. It could be he's waiting for more witness testimony. It could be he wants to bolster his case. It could be he wants to minimize the amount of time between an indictment and an actual in-court appearance. It could be, we don't know this, but it could be that he is wary of being the first of these cases when there probably are others on the way. And this hush money case is the weakest in terms of evidence and the weakest in terms of so facts. So let me ask you this. Can he coordinate with the other prosecutors, the one in Georgia um, or even the special DOJ. prosecutor, DOJ, and say, hey, guys, just wondering, what's your timeline? Because I'm trying to figure out my timeline. Yes, yes, yes. There's no evidence he has. But yes, this is what prosecutors do every day. It happens all the time that you will find out, oh, the guys across the street, a different district's looking at this. First thing you do, you pick up the phone, you say, hey, are you guys looking at so-and-so? And if so, you go, okay, how are we going to deal with this? Are we going to work together? You're going to go first. We're going to go first. Maybe it gets a little contentious sometimes. It's called deconfliction. Prosecutors do it every day of the week. Now, 
Here, there's no indication they have. I think they're wary of it because I think they understand that if Merrick Garland or Jack Smith calls down to Alvin Bragg or Alvin Bragg calls over to Fonnie Willis, what's what's Donald Trump? You guys, what's Donald Trump going to say? I'll leave it to you guys. Donald Trump's going to have Jim Jordan issuing subpoenas the first thing in the morning. But can we also acknowledge there is one thing that we haven't noted, which that the DA's office said that they because of Easter and Passover next week and Ramadan and because a lot of New York City public schools are going to be having break. It's. They're trying to make it easier on grand jurors. Jury duty in any way, shape, or form is not a fun thing for the vast majority of Americans. So you think that's true? You think I do that think there is. I think there is an element true. of truth, and I think that they, if Alvin Bragg had wanted to, he could have plowed through. But I think it is a lucky bounce of the ball for him, where he's allowed to, as Ellie said, yeah. uh, use this time to do it. And this was just already on. He the also, but he could have gone to them. Today, he could have gone to them Monday. He could have gone to them last week. I mean, he's been done putting in evidence for... I mean, he called that rebuttal witness last week, uh, Pecker. But there, he could go now. He could go Monday. He could go Wednesday. I think he's... Th- that break, you're right, was pre-planned. So I think he may be riding that. Surely, this is the best possible result for this series of cases. I mean, we've talked about this before, that you know, not only is this kind of the weakest case, it's also the least significant, yeah. right? I mean, Donald Trump undermining democracy in Georgia and on January 6th, these are incredibly serious charges, and they're important conversations for the nation to be having. And I think there is a sense, I'm not minimizing the Stormy Daniels case, but there is a sense in which that trivialized what's really at stake. So for me, looking at sort of from a, almost an ethical point of view, or the public discourse around this issue, it feels much better to have this conversation about the real stuff, not this distraction. I, I do want to say, as someone who has had to comply methodically with campaign finance laws, like, I think we ought to be taking this prosecution very seriously, too. I actually get frustrated when I, it's referred to in the media oftentimes as a, a novel legal theory. I mean, someone did go to prison and was, you know, did plead guilty, that person being Michael Cohen, over similar conduct, not precisely the same conduct, but similar conduct. And look, I mean, we should not make it the norm in this country that you can you can violate campaign finance law. But we law. don't know about that connection. In other words, you're calling it a campaign finance law. But that that's the novel part, is having to say that this hush money payment somehow was connected to the campaign coffers or that it was about, I mean, that's, Am I right, Ellie? Well, that's well, not necessarily this is, what no. This is it's, it's actually fairly straightforward. So the the campaign finance portion of it is is him, you know, basically help using campaign. hush money to keep someone quiet when that when the disclosure of that information would have impacted the campaign. Otherwise, he wouldn't, you know, he would not have paid the hundred and thirty thousand dollars. And it's for two different marriage. people, by the way. It's maybe not just for Stormy maybe Daniels. Maybe he's trying to find, have Melania not find out. But well, isn't that would, the novel that, part? Then, then or he would am have I wrong? kept paying. The timing of it is significant. It's not a John Edwards situation who kept paying that hush money even after the presidential election was over. This was something that was timed around the time of the presidential election. And there's testimony to that effect. So this is the factual dispute that will play out at trial. Trump will say personal. Prosecutors will say political. What's novel legally is trying to charge this, which is a federal president is a federal race. The federal election laws over in state court. They're going to have a real legal problem with that. Gotcha. Okay, excellent. Thank you all very much. Also, tomorrow on CNN Primetime, former Vice President Mike Pence is going to speak with Wolf Blitzer about being ordered to testify about his conversations with Donald Trump. That's tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. All right, so gone are the days of waiting for a letter in the mail, asking your parents, is it a thin envelope or a thick one? Now it's college acceptance videos. They are sometimes posted, viewed by millions. One student says, stop posting them. It's hurting other kids' mental health. He's here next to explain. 
like that the mom was involved in that one, too. That's just one of the college acceptance videos to go viral. This week, of course, is the all-important college decision week in many households. But in a new piece for The Atlantic, my next guest says it's time to stop posting those college acceptance videos. Joining me now is Zach Gottlieb, high school student and creator of Talk With Zach. Zach, great to have you here. Um, why, why can't kids post those videos? First of all, thanks for having me. And the problem with posting these videos is college is already such a stressful thing that teenagers have to deal with. And when you post these videos, I mean, it seems like everyone's getting into their dream school and it creates this false reality where, I mean, a lot of these schools have like less than 10% acceptance rates, but 100% of the videos are students getting in. And it creates this very skewed reality of everyone's getting into their dream school and it makes people feel who don't get into their dream school is really left out. That's really interesting, Zach. Um, I happen to know a little bit about this because I live with two experts. I have senior (laughs) girl twins who uh, both just went through this very thing. And I asked them today, (laughs) tonight, about what their thoughts are on posting this. So they made videos that were basically private, but for their inner circle. So they posted it on the people, you know, just their inner circle of friends. And what they said was that this is how they find out where their friends are going to school. They might not be their dream schools, but this is how they get their information nowadays. This is how they figure out how their friend who they met at camp, who lives, you know, a thousand miles away, where that kid is going to school. So what's wrong with it just being your community bulletin board? The thing is, if you're doing it like that, if you're showing people where you're going to school, I think that's fine. Like if you're showing your friends where you get into college, it's more when you're publicizing it beyond your own join for people who want to find out. Because when we see these videos, they have like 10 million views and it's random people on the internet, not people you actually want to hear from. And like, if it's a friend, yeah, you want to know where they're going. And it could be any school, not just like the school that's insanely hard to get into that you want to go to. So it's more like, I, I think posting it for your friends, that's great. It's a great way to see, but it's more like I, I take issue with when you're publicizing it, when you're making it seem like this whole ostentatious event rather than just informing people who want to know. And what about the argument that You know, there are winners and losers in this college acceptance game. There just are. That's the reality. And so the kids who don't get into their dream school, they'll be fine. You know, they'll go to some other school. They'll take a gap year, whatever. That's life. And for the kids who want to post, this is the end. This is the culmination. This is the celebratory moment of the months that they've worked on trying to get in. It should really just be about your own joy so obviously it is a celebratory moment so celebrate for yourself show um like have that for yourself so maybe you could look back on it but the thing is our culture makes college this huge thing and teenagers feel like it determines how successful they'll be how happy they'll be so when we see these videos it's not just about their winners or losers it's like this affects me for the rest of my life which obviously isn't true because study after study has shown that where you go to college does not affect your future happiness. So it's really just like if, um, like you could say, yeah, there are obviously winners and losers, but 
how the culture presents it, it can be really harmful for students because personally, I think you can make the most of college wherever you go. So it shouldn't be framed as they're winners and losers, mm -hmm. but rather there's some people who um, go to their dream schools and other people go to schools that are also very good and they will also have good life. So it, sh it shouldn't be framed like you lost. It should be framed like you're gonna make the most of this situation and it'll be a great experience. For sure. And so Zach, next year when you get one of those acceptance uh, <laughs> emails, what are you gonna do? So I'm obviously not gonna make a huge publicity video about this and post it on TikTok. I might record one for myself just to see, but I definitely don't wanna contribute to this culture of colleges going to determine the rest of your life. And I don't wanna do this thing. I even see people like, I didn't get into this my dream school but I got into this other like Ivy League really tough to get into school so it's really just going to be um, a personal thing for me I'm going to be really excited about where I'm going to go and if I don't get into like my ED or dream school I think college is a lot like life you make whatever attitude you have of it so yeah. it's really just going to be I'm going to make the most of it and I'm going to have a great experience wherever I end up. All right, well, we'll want to check in with you and find out <laughs> what happens next. Zach Gottlieb, thank you very much for your take. And my panel is back with me. Uh, we also have insider columnist Lynette Lopez joining us. Uh, great to see you, Lynette. Great to see you, too. All right, great so back. what do you think? Okay, I have only ever seen one acceptance video, the one you just played, and I think people should stop doing it because that was corny. <laughs> um, the other thing I have to say is, what is the difference between these acceptance videos and somebody with abs taking a selfie and putting it on Instagram. You know, like, I don't have abs. Like, I want abs. All of social media is a land where people are reflecting an imaginary best life. <clears throat> All of it. And other people are coveting what they see. It is a push and it is a pull. The algorithm pushes things on us, but we pull things from the internet, too. What are you pulling? That's one question. And two, do you believe everything that is pushed to you? The question is, do we need to change the culture of how we look at college and what we want kids to say? Or do we change the culture of how we think about social media and what people's lives are actually when they post? You know, it's not real. That kid knows it's not real. He knows that a lot of kids who do this, they know it's not real. The irony is like by, Did, ma by maybe, making this, yeah. by being so articulate about like, don't post your college acceptance videos, he just like, really upped his chances of getting into his dream school. Yeah. Like, that was a really was, good media I was, I was thinking that. I'm like, he's going to write a personal statement about his appearance on CNN. Shout out to Zach for doing a great job. Great job, Zach. He was very compelling case. He just shows the video. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so true. Uh, I mean, Harvard's calling right now, I'm sure. So is this, what do you think? Look, I, I remember how excited I was when I got into my first choice school, my dream school, right? I I called my grandmother, answered the phone, told me what the envelope looked like. I think opened it. So you were still opening an envelope. I was still was in school. Everybody here, did everybody here have to open an envelope? <laughs> I looked at an email. <gasps> yeah, I knew it. And I looked at it at work. <laughs> uh, what? I had a I had a job at a cafe in State College, Pennsylvania, at a place called the Corner Room. Shout out to the Corner Room. And I looked at it at work. And then what happened? And everybody was really happy for me because you you yelped. Yeah, because I was so excited and like. No, I didn't put it on Instagram, but I told everybody. That's great. Okay, so you had, <laughs> but you know, you called your grandmother. Had, had Instagram existed at the time, I'm sure I would have posted some heartfelt video of, of of what I was feeling in the moment. I will say, as much as I feel for people who may not get into their first choice colleges or universities, I do worry about this generation and just the sensitivity to certain things. I mean, I want 
parents to prepare their children for the unfairness of this world. True. Like, it, you don't always get what you want. Uh, and, this, and this is true in many other contexts. And I, I've, I've just seen it in the workplace with, with, with this younger generation. And I just, I want to make sure that we, are, that we are preparing, that we are toughening people up for, for the world as it exists. The, la- the last time I was on this program, we talked about, um, we talked about, uh, we talked about, oh my gosh, it just... What did we talk about? What did we talk about? What did we? I could never figure that out. Well, we'll we'll see. Sorry, producers will tell you. But hold that thought. Yeah. Yes. I was going to say first of all, when I got into college, I was at boarding school, and my parents called me and told me, and the way the school I was at did it, we would have a morning meeting every day, and the principal just said, "So and so in the uh, class of 2002 got into this school. That's it." And everybody would clap, and that was the announcement. Nothing big. But I worry these days, it's not just college acceptance videos. It's everything, as Lynette pointed out. It's the apps. And we saw in the TikTok hearings last week, forgetting the China stuff, it was we had parents of kids who had committed suicide because of the way that TikTok has gamed the algorithm to really push unhealthy attitudes towards the kids. They are now facing more anxiety, more depression, more isolation. And that's a serious mental health problem. And as Mondaire said... Yes, we do have to prepare for kids to be able to understand what it's like to face setbacks. When you fall down, the real question is, how do you pick yourself back up? But so do you think they should be posting the video? Absolutely not. No. Just do it in a low-key fashion the way you're There's also- I, I got it back. Go. We were talking about kids and how they feel about being kids, teenagers, and how you know they just want to stay adults, or they just want to be kids. They don't want to be adults. They don't want to deal with the pressure. Part of the pressure of being an adult is rejection on a large scale and sometimes embarrassing yourself, like I just did on national some, television. Sometimes, when I don't remember some, what I was going to some, say. Sometimes you don't even deserve to get into your first choice school. Like, right? like, 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 I just even, say, it's not your first choice. It's also right. that it is so hyper competitive right now, particularly in this year and the year before that, because of uh, a COVID, you know, layover and all sorts of things. Literally, counselors say this year is the most applications they've ever seen. So sometimes it's not getting into school after school after school. It's pretty stressful I don't, for kids. I don't think this right is just now. about hurt feelings either. I mean, kind of, you know, one of my spiritual teachers around us, you know, says, be here now. Making this video is the opposite of being here now. This is such an incredible moment. It doesn't need to be turned into a product. It doesn't need to be turned into like a way to get more likes. Like it's so, it's a, I, I do remember sitting at my kitchen table 865 years ago when I got, when I got my, my letters, my top choice, was a thin letter, so it wasn't so great. So, but that moment of being present, you know, with your f- close friends and family, or even as Zach said, maybe with your friends that you share it in a, in a smaller way, instead of turning it into like yet another commodity. Great point. Okay, thank These you. Videos Hold are that. corny. Hold that thought. <laughs> They're corny. Um, we That's have to talk succinct. about this as we have been throughout the program. Tech leaders are penning a letter calling for a pause in what they describe as out of control AI development that may ruin humanity. Who signed that letter? What recommendations do they have? What warnings do they have for the rest of us? That's next. Major tech leaders, including Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak, signing a letter calling for a stop to the development of, quote, out-of-control AI for at least six months. But with ChatGPT already being used and AI-generated fake images spreading online, is it too late? I'm back now with my panel. 
when they speak about this and about it being really worrisome to them, I feel like we should listen. Evan, here's what some of the letter said. We must ask ourselves, should we let machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? Should we automate away all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? Should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete, and replace us? Should we risk loss of control of our civilization? Such decisions must not be delegated to unelected tech leaders. I, I feel like we should heed this warning. I think we should heed it and then some. To be honest with you, AI is a, a, a leaps and bounds in technology for us. Think of the invention of the abacus or a semiconductor. They helped us to calculate. They didn't start being able to create their own AI code like AI is becoming able to do. AI is going to become self-sufficient. And I don't mean that in a sci-fi way. I just mean it in a reality way. Now, what happens when AI comes in? It's going to change the world economy. It's estimated that up to 25% of all jobs in the world could be replaced by AI. Do you understand the economic displacement? It would make the Great Depression look like a tiny little bad day on the Dow. I mean, it's so terrifying. And at the same time, we haven't planned for it. And we have to really start having government regulate it. It's like nuclear weapons, except with nuclear weapons, it was done by nation states and there are non-proliferation treaties. But this is democratized where it's you in your basement can create AI and it can run like wildfire and we might not be ready. Here's my problem. The people in Washington are still trying to figure out how to take their Venmo transaction history offline (laughs) and turn their red receipts off their iPhones. So I understand the idea of a six-month moratorium on technological development, but that's not going to help Washington get up to speed. I've talked to insiders in this game, and they're hoping that the EU can keep up with what's going on in AI development. Because we can't. America can't. The EU has to lead the way. Well, they seem to be leading the way in terms of tech, uh, all of the regulation that has come down. Antitrust, the big tech companies. I agree with that. The EU has been in, in the lead here. And again... Washington, not great with cell phones. Yeah, but six months is not going to solve the problem. Six months is an arbitrary number. You say you don't mean it in a sci-fi way when you say self-sufficient. I actually do. I mean, my favorite movie is is T2 Judgment Day, right? Terminator 2 Judgment Day. We all remember when the machines became self-aware. And and there's already been some indication that these these machines are are doing things that that they were not programmed to do yet. And so I, I do worry about the complete absence of national and, in fact, global standards that would govern the way artificial intelligence is created and used. You were in Congress. What, what should they be doing? Well, we need to elect younger people to Congress, first of all. But, but, but also, we should be having hearings on this, and we should be very seriously thinking about how to leverage a, a moment in which you've got technologists and, and entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and others who are saying, yeah, this concerns me as well, so... so, so Use that energy that exists that, does, that isn't always there for people who are just trying to make a buck or, or billions of dollars um, and, and get ethicists in this as well, because there are a lot of, of, of ethical questions. implications, moral questions involved in this. Isn't there a question of also of who is the we? Right. So that statement uses we should do this. Somehow, I don't feel like the libertarian uh, tech bros who signed that statement really think that there should be congressional hearings and government regulation. And even if there were congressional hearings and government regulation, that's the United States, maybe the EU. But what about China? What about Russia? What about other countries where if we don't move ahead in our AI development, they are going to move ahead in their their AI development? That's what and it feels to me says. like I don't, I don't necessarily say that the concerns that are being voiced are incorrect. I think they are correct. But I'm not sure who the we is who can put this genie back into the bottle. So what is the answer? 
So I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm friends with a lot of AI doomsayers who have done a lot of really good work on this. Actually, the effective altruism movement, which gets maligned sometimes, actually has done a lot of really good thinking about, about AI risks. And a lot of the risks really are more about, like, the sorcerer's apprentice. You know, AIs that replicate themselves, not in a sort of Terminator way, although I also like that movie, but just simply making more stuff and doing more stuff and optimizing for the wrong things. And it feels like there might be a way uh, to have something that looked a little bit like the early standards of the Internet, which which were also global uh, and which also took a lot of private actors really acting together because I agree, like these members of Congress, I mean, I feel like every time I watched that TikTok hearing, it was like helping my mom plug in her VCR. It was like this disaster. Maybe there's a way for people who are actually involved in this work to set standards that they all agree uh, to stand by and then basically segment or ostracize those who don't agree to those standards. There is one bit of non-doom and gloom very quickly, which is that uh, it could actually alleviate some health care problems in the United States. One of the, we have a healthcare shortage of doctors and healthcare providers. And one of the things that doctors do that is really tough for them, they spend two to three hours a day taking notes and writing down patient notes. And there are companies out there that are utilizing AI that listen in on an exam. It's all privatized. It follows HIPAA. And it writes up an edited draft for the doctor to review. And if we are able to do that, doctors get more time. And we remember, we're becoming older as a population, and we're going to have an elder care crisis. This will help to alleviate it. I appreciate you bringing in the good thing about AI because it yeah, does sound a ton of good. Yeah. Uh, thank you all very much. All right. Stay with me because this was day seven of Gwyneth Paltrow's ski collision trial. Her defense team this day called a series of doctors to the stand. We're going to let you know what they said next. Day seven of the Gwyneth Paltrow ski collision trial. She's being sued by a 76-year-old man named Terry Sanderson, who says Paltrow ran into him on a beginner's ski slope, causing him a lot of damage. He says he suffered a traumatic brain injury and broken ribs. Paltrow says it was Sanderson who hit her. Today, Paltrow's team called several doctors to the stand to try to prove that Sanderson's mental deterioration was not from the collision. There's a number of personality traits that are measured, and Mr. Sanderson scored extremely high on narcissism and specifically um, the pattern of his responses within that category suggests somebody who might be um, feel that he is superior. Um, he may feel that he lacks empathy. I'm back with my panel. Guys, are you hanging on every word of this trial? I think I'm the only person, well, maybe you like the Lynette too. No, I'm, these rich people need to send each other a fruit basket. I'm actually <laughs> super into this trial. I was a skeptic when we were first covering it on the show, and now I'm all in. And I think what's turned you? I'm really interested. I'm not particularly interested in the outcome of this trial, but I am really interested in the way that we make myths and narratives out of things like this. And so is this the sort of narcissistic celebrity who's callous and who hurt this innocent person? That's a narrative, right? That, and then, or is it the, you know, the gold digger, the opportunist who's going after the, the big money day? And I'm really interested in what the biases and sort of prejudices are that, that we import into those, decision, those decisions. And I think I am on kind of team Gwynnicent, which is also a great hashtag, by the way, uh, uh, on the facts, you know, as, as a lawyer, when I look at it, and I did learn in preparation uh, for this that, uh, you know, the vast majority of ski accidents just go to who was uphill and who was downhill. Mm-hmm. The uphill person always that's loses, That's kind of the right? law of the hill. Because yeah. that's kind of gravity always wins, as Radiohead said. And I feel like that's kind of the... 
it does seem as though all of the data is on the Gwyneth Paltrow side of this, but I'm really, I'm actually really interested kind of from the rabbi point of view in the meta discourse about this and in how we reach these judgments of who feels innocent or who feels I right. like what you're saying about this, Jay, because it is the archetypes. So we, we do respond to different archetypes. And so one is what you're describing, the narcissistic celebrity versus um, this, uh, what were you saying, money grabbing? These are two of the narratives, yeah. right? Either this is an innocent person who's been, you know, severely injured by the celebrity, or this is, and these are these kind of myths and stories that we take in. Absolutely. Take it's also David and Goliath. Like, if you see him as the little guy and her as the big celebrity, and that's what the way his lawyers are trying to paint it is. How many times have you talked to Taylor Swift, you know, in the past month? They're asking Gwyneth Paltrow, so that has anything to do with skiing. But in any event, it's just interesting also to watch a celebrity have to go through the pedestrian experience of being sued in court, like any of us, you know, might if we were. She chose this battle, right? She is clearly very wealthy. Obviously, if there was any doubt in her and her attorney's mind, she would. This, you settle this. You make this go away. You don't do this. Either she wants the publicity, or I think she thinks she's actually innocent and she's going to going to the mat on this. Well, some well, of the publicity has been pretty bad for her, it, just from a fashion standpoint and an image standpoint. Stop. I'm not. She kidding. looks you didn't fabulous. Like the she's wearing oh, like Jeffrey Dahmer glasses and Ted Bundy sweaters. Uh, she's but, an but, but the person who actually comes out looking worst in this—it's not Gwyneth Paltrow. It's the plaintiff's counsel. I've worked in the judiciary, and I have no idea what she's doing. True. It's a terrible hire by this plaintiff. Because she she's was sucking seeing, up and being yeah. friendly. Oh yeah, playing compliments. No, you're like there. You're yeah. there to try and advocate on behalf of your client. This is just stunningly bad legal. Yeah, representation. she's being Regina Georged. That's what's happening. Like Gwyneth, the aura of Gwyneth and of her cool girl Ness is just. Astounding! It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Her attorney. Oh, she was like Gwyneth was like, I like your shoes, and she was like, Oh my God, Gwyneth likes my shoes. It was. It's not. It's not great for her. But I, I think Gwyneth looks great, and I hope these rich people can work it out. Okay. Well, interestingly, we heard from Gwyneth's children today. Um, Her son is named Moses. So here is the defense attorney asking Moses a question. Let's look. Oh, it's a stand-in. It's a stand-in for us. So somebody's just reading the. Oh, okay. It's too. This this is fascinating. So Moses didn't have to take the stand, I guess, because he's a, perhaps a celebrity's child or a minor. So it's somebody doing basically a dramatic reading, as I sometimes do, of courtroom transcripts, um, of Moses's responses to what he saw on the slope that day. So let's listen. When I skied over, I heard my mom yelling at the guy. What was she saying? She was saying something along the lines of, What the F word? You just ran into me. And anything else that you recall at that moment? No. Was she standing up when she said that? I do not fully remember, but I believe she was on the ground lying down. Okay, that was awesome. I've never seen that in a courtroom where people do people play other parts, other roles there. It's like a stage reading of the opera. Like the music hasn't been finished yet, but we've got Having, having done a trial before, I, I, I could tell you there was a, probably a, a lot of argumentation over who would be allowed to read that. Yes. Who would play Moses? <laughs> one, yes. yes. <laughs> one of my friends told me that this man who is suing Gwyneth now says that he has multiple personalities. And it seems to me that one of those personalities wants to be famous. 
And that's where we are. Is that right? I hadn't read that. I thought that that's what I heard. That's what I heard in the transcript. It's hard to see him as a sympathetic character. Very hard. Because they're skiing. You know, they're both wealthy, right? Like, and and, and these are folks... On the bunny slope, you guys. Come on. (laughs) Work it out amongst yourselves. Yeah, but he can't go to wine tastings anymore. Did you see that detail? So let's play this. The man who's suing um, Gwyneth Paltrow, his name is Mr. Sanderson. Let's play this. I think we get to see him. Well, that's the purpose, I think, is to make me regret this lawsuit and uh, that it's the pain of trying to sue a celebrity it's just very difficult I will tell everyone that you're going to get exposed your, your honor we're not talking about this case now he's talking about the world sustained as to the generalization was it important to you to bring this lawsuit it was I felt like I was seriously injured, and then I had so many insults added to that. I think, as I said the other day, so many insults added to that and layered on. Okay, so there was testimony that he had changes to his personality, not multiple personalities. I'm uh, trying to avoid Mr. Sanderson suing you right oh, now. Okay, okay that's what I'm that. trying to. Okay. He's clearly do, yeah. interested <laughs> in doing that. I don't have guys, money. I have to. I would have guys, guys, no, no, no. I have to wrap this up because we have to talk about a naked dinner party. Oh. We were trying to extend this segment. No, so we wouldn't have we're not. <laughs> You're not avoiding a naked dinner party. That's what we're talking uh, about next. Uh, How many have you been to? We're going to ask our panel. They're a real thing. They're happening. We have the pictures to prove it. <laughs> have you ever eaten a meal naked? What about eating naked with strangers? It's a new movement. We're not making this up. It's called the food dining experience, but it's spelled like nude. We have the photos to prove it. Here's some photos from one of their recent dinners. Looks great. Would you do this? Let's ask the panel. Jay, I feel like you've been to a nude dinner party. (laughs) Have you? You ask the rabbi that question? Yes, I, I mean, just feel look, like I've, you have I, new dinner I've gone vibes. to Burning Man 14 times. <laughs> I've been to naked breakfast, lunch, dinner, cocktail parties, snacks, you name it. Cocktail you know, parties. There's a time and a place for everything, I Wait would say. Wait a minute, at Burning Man, there's all nude meals? I mean, there's just everything, everything. It's a wonderful expression of the human spirit, and, you know, sometimes that's what it means. But I just question the whole idea about serving, like, hot pasta hot and other Here, let know, me tell, read like you that. the menu. Here it goes. At, this was at one of their recent dinner parties. Carrot and ginger soup, quinoa stuffed bell peppers, cacao raspberry avocado mousse. You know, so like a, a lot good. of a lot of Jewish people are cleaning up for right. Passover right now, and like crumbs get kind of everywhere. And when I think about quinoa and a naked dinner, no, yeah, that's unacceptable. <laughs> that's an issue. I've never been invited to do any like group naked things by anyone I would want to see naked ever in my life. It's always somebody that I'm just like. Nope, not you, not your friends. So you are getting a lot of naked invitations, just not from people you want. <laughs> I live in New York City. You know, people invite you to all kinds of crazy stuff. It's like a nude beach. It's not what you actually want to not... see when you ramble down one of those nude No, beaches. no, no, no. You don't... Uh, I, I once... So this hedge fund manager once told me, never go to a fight you're invited to. And I think it's probably the same thing for any naked party. Uh-huh. Um, Congressman, yeah. how many nude dinner parties have you been to? Zero. Are you just trying to run for office again? I think people are bored. People are so bored. (laughs) And I feel for those people. (laughs) 
But this is not the way. This is not the answer. <laughs> Evan, you've got nine seconds. How many new dinner parties? I've been to none, but it would depend upon if it's a Michelin-starred chef or not. And <laughs> on the bright side, if you spill red wine, you don't have to take anything to the dry cleaners. Such a great point. Oh, my God. That's good. Hell, thank you very out. much. You've made excellent points. All right, tomorrow on CNN This Morning, has America's tipping culture gone overboard? And what about at a new dinner? The new numbers and challenges facing you at the checkout counter. Tune in for CNN This Morning starting at 6 a.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. All right, thanks for watching, everyone. You can find me on social media if you want to talk more about this, at Allison Camerata. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.